This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strike Talk. There's only one movie poster hanging anywhere in my home. It's from Ordinary People, written by the late, great Alvin Sargent. I honor that film not just because it was so exquisitely written, but because Alvin was such a great teacher for me. When I was getting my start and found myself writing about things like volcanoes on Wilshire Boulevard, Alvin was kind to me. He gave me insights about craft that helped. Once when I was on another movie and I was being badly treated by a star who shall remain nameless, God, what a little prick. Alvin met me for breakfast to console me. The guy didn't need a mentee, but there he was. I said to him, you've been doing this for a while. You've even written for this actor. How have you kept your sanity? And Alvin being Alvin said, Billy, whatever makes you think that I have. Mentors have always guided me. Everything I know, someone taught me. When I was about to direct for the first time, I knew I had no idea what I was doing. So I cold called a bunch of first time writer directors and asked if I could take them to lunch. They all said yes. Thank you, Brian Helgel and David Goyer and Ed Solomon. I did the same with producers that I had written for. I asked them where the landmines were for first-time directors. Asked them what about me as a first-time director would concern them. They all helped. Like great teachers, they educated me without punishing me. Even before prep began on that little film, my DP, Mandy Walker, was already teaching me how to shoot a film. Even before post, my editor, Jeff Ford, was teaching me how to turn moments, images, and sound into an actual narrative. I'll be in their debt forever. To this day, producers teach me valuable lessons about the mountaintops I'm trying to reach and why they may be an illusion. And mentors have taught me about guild service, political messaging, and how to host a podcast. Human beings need mentors, even famous people. Maya Angelou mentored Oprah Winfrey, who in turn mentored Tyler Perry, who in turn has mentored and inspired untold numbers of filmmakers of color. Mahatma Gandhi mentored Nelson Mandela. Every woman in the American suffrage movement mentored and was mentored. Barack Obama was once assigned a mentor at a Chicago law firm. Her name was Michelle Robinson. They married and changed the world. Beethoven had mentors. Shakespeare had mentors. The original opening line of Paul McCartney's song, I Saw Her Standing There, was, she was just 17, never been no beauty queen. It was John Lennon who suggested, maybe change that to, you know what I mean. And all the Beatles considered Brian Epstein to be a mentor. Taylor Swift and Charles Darwin had mentors. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had mentors, one of whom was the writer Vladimir Nabokov. JFK had mentors. Woodward and Bernstein had mentors. Studio heads have mentors. Every 18th century smithy in every 18th century forge learned their craft by apprenticeship. And that is exactly how people learn how to run television shows, by watching in writer's rooms.
Since the beginning of television, writers' rooms have served as a university for future showrunners, a virtual assembly line churning out such giants as Shonda Rhimes, Vince Gilligan, Sean Ryan, Tina Fey, Howard Gordon, David Chase, and Jenji Cohen, among others. Which means writers' rooms don't cost money, they make money, ungodly amounts of it, for the very companies that now, with a short-sightedness that is truly breathtaking, want to eliminate them. That would be like Major League Baseball getting rid of Minor League Baseball, the farm system where every player in the game, the ones we all now pay to watch, get their start. It would be like the U.S. Army making a general out of someone who had never been a lieutenant, captain, or major, someone who'd never even been to officer candidate school, and expecting them to lead people into battle. It would be like making Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, without his first experiencing decades of jobs on his way up, including being a weatherman at a small TV station in Ithaca, years of experience that prepared him to run his empire so well. It would be like making someone a surgeon without first putting them through internship or residency just to save the cost of educating them. And do you know what happens when you elect a president who hasn't first learned about governing by being a governor or a senator? You get a president who doesn't know how to govern. You get ineptitude. Is it too much to suggest that Donald Trump is the reason we need writer's rooms? Well, ask yourself, would you want that fucking guy in charge of the next season of The Bear? It would be like farming without watering your field. It would be letting the fire in the forge go out forever. My four guests know that. They've lived it. They learned their craft in writer's rooms, and now they teach their craft, our craft, in writer's rooms. As showrunners, they are writers, producers, advocates, fighters, handholders, part-time therapists, and yes, mentors. They are also the fulcrum on every series in the never-ending friction between creative necessities and financial constraints. They are, on any given day, athletes, generals, CEOs, and surgeons. What they are not is ordinary people. Please meet in Keiichi Carroll, Sarah Gamble, Courtney Kemp, and Greg Berlanti. Welcome to you all. Question one, how did you learn how to run a TV show? I guess we'll start with you, Courtney. Um, Greg Berlanti. No, I'm kidding. Um, that is a huge part of it. Uh, big, big part of it. Uh, I, I met Greg when I was at a really formative time in my career. I was a story editor going into ESE, I think maybe ESE going into co-producer. Um, and from that experience on Eli Stone, I learned a lot about how to juggle multiple shows, first of all, because that was a period of time where Greg had Dirty Sexy Money and Brothers and Sisters and us. We were <laughs> running around like crazy people. Um, but I really learned the team spirit because weirdly enough, that was right before the last strike. So I was an Eli Stone person when we went on strike before. And so really learning not just to be responsible to the writer's room and to story, but also to be responsible to the crew and to care about everyone that you run, not just the writers. That's something that I learned from Greg specifically. Um, I think I've had great mentors, um, Yvette Lee Bowser, Jeff Melvoin, Robert and Michelle King. Um, I've learned from great, great storytellers and I've stolen heavily from all of them. Um, if you, uh, if you like, you know, watch my work, you'll see Greg, you'll see Robert, you know, you'll see Jeff and all of it. Um, and I always make this point and I think it's important. Yes, Yvette looks like me, but the other people I mentioned don't. Your mentors don't have to look like you or sound like you. They just have to be people who believe in you. 
Um, so that's something that I think is really important because a lot of young people think they have to find someone who has their biography. You don't. You just have to find somebody who believes in your talent. Sarah, how about you? How'd you learn how to run a room? I learned it by being in a room. I, I think I learned a lot about how to be a good showrunner and as much as I'm a good showrunner from Greg. My story was much more usual a few years ago. I climbed through the ranks of a writer's room. I started as the lowest level writer in that room on a show called Supernatural, which was on the CW for 15 seasons. <laughs> um, I was there for the first seven. I was story editor level when I started and uh, I was an EP in season five and Eric Kripke, the creator of that show, um, you know, changed my life by inviting me to learn how to do his job and take the show over in season six and seven. So I learned by being invited behind the curtain. And, you know, even if you're in a writer's room all day, every day, doing 22 episodes a season, which is what we were doing back then, there's a lot you cannot possibly know about being a showrunner because those are things that are happening behind a closed door while the room is running. And uh, you need somebody who's willing to hold your hand a little bit, I think, in the beginning. And I, I, I at least, I think it would be my worst nightmare not to have had that person. Um, and yeah, from there, I, I met Greg just as I was leaving Supernatural. I had a little script deal at Warner Brothers and we were match made and it was love at first sight for me. And it was sort of similar story to Courtney when our show that we, we wrote a pilot together called You and the show got picked up after many years. And um, I, I had another show I was co-running called The Magicians at the time. And the I really think that the only reason I was able to do two shows at the same time is because I had mentors. Because I could look at Greg and not only was he doing it, he was doing it very calmly and he was friendly and he took the time to help other people. And you know, so he gave me a lot of advice because I asked him questions, but he also just modeled for me the kind of leader you can be. And in Keiichi, what how about you? I had an entire sort of career as an economist um, for 14 years before I finally transitioned to um, writing for pay. And so eventually, um, similar to Sarah, I uh, started in a writer's room as a staff writer, worked my way up. Um, I had, I was truly, truly blessed to work for phenomenal showrunners. Um, and I always say, I think God just knew not to put me in the room with the other kind because I would have probably ended up in jail. So I worked for <laughs> the Hart Hansons of the world, um, Todd Hartham, Stephen Nathan, and they all generously, generously taught me. I, I still remember Hart being like, go ahead, you're producing your episode. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? I literally worked at the Fed six months ago. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, no, you've got this. We're going to lead you through it. And similar to Sarah, they pulled me behind the curtain. They sat me in editing with them and taught me how they did it, how they managed it. They, you know, sent us to set to manage conflicts with our actors. And they're like, we're a phone call away if you need us, but you've got this. You can go down there and have a conversation with them about your script. Um, and that's, that's how I learned. Um, and then, and I knew I wanted to be a showrunner. Um, I knew I had a particular, I sound like Liam Neeson. I knew I had a particular set of skills <laughs> that would likely make me um, a semi-decent showrunner. Um, and part of that was just having worked in corporate America and the people management aspect for so long. And so um, when I left my deal at 20th and signed a deal with Warner Brothers, my one request, one request was that I get to meet Greg. I had spent God knows how many years admiring this man from afar. I had never had a chance to meet him. I was like, I just want one meeting in his office. 
Um, and I got that. And thankfully he was everything and more. Um, and he truly was the one that ultimately made that leap for me and he believed. And so when he calls at, I think it was like 10 o'clock at night, Greg or something. And he was like, how would you, how'd you feel about becoming a showrunner? And I'm like, when he's like nine 30 tomorrow morning. I'm like, Oh, sure. <laughs> like you say, yes. Um, but he believed there was never a doubt in his mind that I could do it. And therefore there wasn't a doubt in my mind that I would be able to achieve it, even though I was stepping in after the season had already started, even though I was sort of like, oh my gosh, the train has left the station and we have to, we have to reach our destination. We have to dock at the end of the season. Um, his unwavering belief that I could do it is kind of what made me be like, okay, we can do this. We're going to problem solve. We're going to make our way to the end of the season. We're going to have an amazing season. Um, and that was season one of All American. And that was, you know, six years ago. Mm. All right. So when this podcast began, one of the first calls that I made was to Greg because I thought he'd be a great guest. And he was very nervous about coming on the show because he didn't feel that he was interesting enough. I said, well, what if I paired you with other people so that it would be sort of a softer landing for you? He said, OK, well, I would consider that. Um, Greg, I can't imagine a softer landing for you than, than the three people that I have uh, that, that, that are on the show right now. Tell me how you learned how to be a showrunner. It actually circles back to all three uh, of these amazing women because I, I had to learn in a very unique way. Um, I When I discovered, when I'd gotten uh, my first gig in television, it was to work for Kevin Williamson, uh, who's still a very close friend and, and uh, had created the show Dawson's Creek, which hadn't aired yet. And he was hiring for the second season because the first season was a mid-season show. And uh, I was working on a film uh, for him and Julie Pleck, who's since become her own amazing force uh, in television and, and all things. And as a, a close friend of mine from college had gotten me, had put some of my work in front of him, gotten me this job. And we were both worked on the show, her as his development executive and myself as a staff writer in the second season of the show. Um, and uh, I was, I, 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 two things immediately happened. I was incredibly, incredibly um, nervous and did not speak in the room for at least a while. And, and if I was going to say something, I would I would call Julie Pleck the night before and I would go through what I was going to say um, and think about what I would would maybe say uh, the next day, because that's how sort of just intimidated I was by by everybody. And then the next uh, and the other thing that happened was I definitely felt like I was at home. Finally, I was like in a room with other people exchanging creative ideas and story points and, and talking about, uh, you know, the, the psychology and the motivation of characters. And then also just a huge part, it reminded me of, I had studied theater in college, that the writer was this vital, vital epicenter of the whole thing from, from the, the moment the idea was conceived to the moment the audience experienced that emotional journey what then ended up happening was Kevin left the show. I, I wrote on a number of episodes that year. He saw things in this really beautiful, non-hierarchical way where he would just give you scenes and give you stories. And, and, um, and it was a very free flowing room. There were some other uh, people who from, uh, of incredible note and talent uh, from that room who I'll mention in a second, who I also learned stuff from, but within a year, he left at the end of the year. And, and at the top of the next year, some other people came in, they ended up leaving, and and by the middle of the next season, which was the third show's third season, I had written on 11, 12 episodes, I think, of the show, and, and the network asked me to run the show. 
And um, at, at, uh, I declined it several times. They finally said, that's not really how television works. Um, you have to say yes. And, um, and it seemed like a no-win opportunity. And so I, I've learned everything I've had to learn from showrunning, mostly uh, from my contemporaries that I've had to do it with and my reliance on other writers. At the time, there was this, you know, people would talk about how David Kelly would sort of just write all the episodes himself. I couldn't do that. Um, there was the genius that was John Wells, who was the best showrunner, room runner at the time, uh, and still probably is. And I, I didn't have his skill set or his knowledge base. Um, uh, you know, that I could go. There was Aaron Sorkin, I think, soon thereafter, writing West Wing all by himself. I wasn't that person. It, every time I learned about um, about folks, it seemed like they had superpowers I, I didn't have. And so I just decided to lean into um, and lean on my compatriots. And, and then the next show I did was a show I created called Everwood. And that was also very much the case where the contemporaries that I hired, who, many of whom I've stayed quite close with through the years, and the, the writer base was was my really, for me, my favorite part about different writers have different motivations for why they do things. But, but my collaboration with and my uh, chance to work with other writers in writer rooms has been my favorite part about career that I've been blessed to have and and is my the thing that excites me the most every day and is what enabled me to go from thing to thing. And then along the way, what I've been really fortunate to, to do is to be a part of or witness certain individuals who I've met in writers' rooms or work with in writers' rooms and watch them go on to ascend to sort of conquer the world. And those are the three individuals that are are here today. So when you called and said, you know, hey, do you know some showrunners? These were the three people that immediately came to my mind because we met in via writing and in writers' rooms, and and you could see, oh, that person has the capacity to create and protect the soul of a show. Which I, I you've mentioned many times, Billy, on this podcast. You know that often what we're trying to explain to the studios is what's best for them. And I think so much of our job as showrunners is to explain to everybody, hey, this is this is good for you, actor. This is good for you, you know, uh, production. This is good for you, studio. It may cost a little bit more here, but the dividends with the audience uh, and for this show are going to be phenomenal. And and you just when you meet people that have that thing that you know they're going to it's going to the show is going to be the first thing, last thing they think about every day. And that they're going to be, you know, they could have less funds and less money and they're still going to do something profound and emotional and extraordinary. You just you just know it. And I've been zapped by lightning a few times in my career when I've met certain individuals. And I can say that, you know, wholeheartedly about about these these people. They've all gone on to run multiple shows at the same time. So between the four of you, all of whom learned the right way, all of whom learned on someone else's staff in someone else's room, how many shows have the four of you collectively run? I, I don't run all of them, but I would say I'm responsible for four titles. I've run three. With three. a lot of help and an army of support, yeah. <laughs> Same for me, three. You know, I, I, I genuinely feel like I have to sit down and write on a sheet of paper. I, I don't keep track. I don't. Uh, I, it's two thousand four hundred and seventy-two. That's right. the. No, no, no. I think that was and the last number. Times we've had, you know, um, and and that I was singularly, I, I've always almost co-showrun stuff, with the exception of early on in my career. So so I've never been, uh, singularly running more than three at one time. But but you know, mm. but being involved with multiple shows at the same time, you know, we've had as many as as 
12, 15 shows happening at the same time. So, so these four people that I'm talking to now, all of whom learned uh, in the forge uh, by watching a, a Smithy, um, we, the four of you alone are responsible for, let's say conservatively, 25 shows um, that have been on the air to profit this business. I, I find that pretty staggering um, and a, a pretty good demonstration of the idea that writer's rooms work. Tell me how the dynamic of a writer's room has changed over the last 20 years, the last 10 years, or even the last five years. What are the big picture changes that you're seeing? Um, I have fought very hard for it not to change. Um, I work, my bread and butter is, is predominantly network TV, um, which just because of the way that production schedule runs necessitates a full writer's room and a full writer's room participating almost the entire time versus sort of the mini room situation and all of that that we tend to see in streaming. And what so is your definition of a full writer's room? Um, honestly, it depends on the episodic order, but, um, you know, let's take all American, for example, we do 20 episodes. Um, I believe, I believe there are 10 of us in that room on, on homecoming, which is, which was 15 episodes. So last season was 15 episodes and there were eight of us in that room. Um, and I needed every single one of those people. Um, and so was able to not only staff it sort of the way I needed to and make the arguments, you know, things come up with budget and we can't afford. And my argument is always like, let me do my job. Let me hire the writers I need to hire. Let me worry about how I'm gonna balance out the math and I will bring this in on target for the season. But don't limit me by saying you only have this pool to work out of for your writer's room. Because for me, if I don't have the writer's room we need, we don't have a show. There's no chance of me being able to do everything else you want me to do and then bring it in on budget if I can't have the foundation I need um, to make it work. And each of those writers uh, was allowed to produce their own episodes, yes? Oh, that's mandatory on my shows. You, you, you can't work for me if you don't want to. If it's Yeah. If you're coming out of uh, any Rock My Soul production, the one thing they will not be able to say about you is that you don't know how to produce an episode, that you don't know how to deal with, how to problem solve, and you will absolutely spend time in editing. And all of that makes my life easier. If I train them to be able to give notes on cuts the way I do, I suddenly don't have to watch the first cut that comes out. I can send my writer in there. They always CC me on the notes they're sending to editors. I can have them do the first pass. I just freed up four hours of my life to be able to do something on one of my other shows or be able to spend more time in the writer's room and make sure we're staying on track with our characters' journeys and all of it's It's four hours I get back. And so for all of my writers, it's actually mandatory that they um, produce their episodes. And it's something I fight for from the very beginning. All of my upper levels understand that if they work on one of my shows, they're also expected to and required to mentor the younger writers so that we are churning out the next generation of voices. I'm a fan of TV. I want to sit at home with a bowl of ice cream and watch a ton of TV. And I can't, for me, if we're not training up that next generation to be able to do this, it affects the thing that brings me joy, which is being able to sit back and watch amazing TV. And so I, find, I, I consider it not only something that I enjoy doing, but an obligation of being a showrunner is to, if people work on my shows, is to train them to be able to do this for their shows one day. And Courtney, how, how has it changed for you the last few years? Do you, are you experiencing more pressure to shrink your writer's rooms? 
I mean, absolutely. The difference between power, I came from broadcast, obviously. So when I came in and opened my writer's room for power, I hired somebody at every single level. <laughs> I was like, I need a full writer's room. And they were like, you have eight episodes. And I was like, I need a full writer's room anyway. I don't know how to do it. Wah. But the thing is, then I was promoting everybody, right? So I grew up in a Greg world and a, you know, Melvoin world and a King world. We got, we promoted every year. So I had this room and I personally like to promote from within. So I take my writer's PA and my writer's assistant and my, you know, script coordinator. And that's part of the pipeline. I want you to learn every position. I want you to learn all those things like in catchy. Listen, I was, I was producing, I was on set on Eli Stone. Again, I was always back when I'm a hundred years old. So back when I was doing this, there were still shows in LA. So then you went to set and then you went back and forth from the writer's room and you told the, uh, the writers what was happening on set and you got to know the directors and you got to know your crew. And so that was really important to me for power. So everybody was flying out to New York and at the time, and I think part of what Nketchi is saying, this is real, is that as Power, book one, the first one, got more successful, I was able to throw my weight around and say, no, you are paying for that. No, I am going to get these people flown out there. No, I am going to have this person extend. Yes, I am going to be able to protect my staff writer or my story editor so that they get paid. Um, those things came that came with more, I hate to say it, but power, no pun intended. So... I feel as though people who are just coming in now, show running for the first time, if you don't have the ability to say, well, my show is successful, it's harder to get some of these things paid for than it used to be. It used to be a given. And what I would say all the time is, okay, I can send a writer or you guys can eventually have to fly out because set isn't working, right? Like either I'm there or a, a writer is there because a writer on set is crucial. It is I love that Nkechi says mandatory. I don't want to shoot a frame without a writer there. I don't want to do that. I don't, it's not what's best for the show. It's not what's best for the product, right? And so I just, I, I find the notion of us doing this with less people, which they love. They love less people. They love less people. And they love less people who go home faster and who aren't producing in the process faster. And it's like, but actually that's what gets you the good product, you can't actually short this end. You actually have to pay for the whole thing so that the product that the audience gets is great so you can make more spinoffs of that product because ultimately that's what you want. You want more of the same product, right? So give it to me. And I think that, you know, uh, maybe coming from a little bit of not just Greg, but the Wells model of these full rooms, you know, um, those rooms, when Ketchy says she has 20 episodes and... I mean, 20 people, I'm sorry, 20 episodes and 10 people. That's manageable. Two episodes a person is very manageable. That means your room stays full. It means your room's not empty when you are breaking episode eight, when you're breaking episode 13, 15, your room's not empty. That's crucial. You need somebody there captaining the ship and you need to be able to step out and take a phone call. And I think that's really, you know, that's what the purpose of these full rooms are. Sarah, how has it changed in the last couple of years for you? Well, I'll start by saying a lot of my philosophy and the philosophy of my partners on you and the magicians is very much the same as what Courtney and Ketchy are saying, um, that we really believe in promoting from within. Rooms get bigger year on year, often because somebody who started as a PA gets a shot to co-write a script and eventually become a staff writer. And and yeah, the season one of you, I think we had six or seven writers. Um, the room is a little bit bigger now because we're going into season five. Um, but, you know, to be honest, it's become much more difficult 
to keep writers all the way through production, much less post. That's something I fight for and uh, compromise on to keep some, frankly, because there is a tension between not only the length of the order, how many episodes, um, but also kind of like a trend towards wanting to see all of the scripts completed first versus being in a situation where you're still in the writer's room, you're breaking the end of the season, several scripts are in the pipeline, and you've become you've, you've begun to prep and shoot the first few episodes. And um, Greg and I talk about this all the time. We very much prefer to still be in the room when production begins because, I mean, what is more inspiring than to see an actor embody a role? It changes so much about the way you're writing. And sometimes you discover chemistry between two characters that you weren't even thinking about and it's just like a beautiful miracle and also just the show is better if you're reacting sort of in real time as you're making it but you know that we've sort of moved away from that a little bit especially at streamers it's just not how executives have experienced a lot of shows and you know one thing I'll say because this is sort of about mentoring as you say Billy um you know one of the very first thing I things I learned was how to say no which is not easy for me. I still am learning how to say no. I'm not a combative person by nature, really. Um, but, you know, starting when I was a staff writer on my first show, John McNamara, the magician's co-creator, who's a friend and a mentor to me, you know, he let me sort of sit in his office and watch him say no to executives on the phone. So I learned his style of saying, this is not how it's going to go. And when we, when Magicians was picked up for season one, the first schedule that was uh, suggested by our partners at the studio had us in the writer's room for several months. And then most or all of the writers would go home and then we would start shooting. And so the first thing we did was call them and say no. And that's something that, um, uh, you know, I, I and so many showrunners who sort of climbed through the ranks of a writer's room, we have to learn how to do that. We have to discover our own style of being able to say not just yes and, which is what makes us so great when we're on a staff, is to say, like, we'll fix it. We'll make it work. Let me be additive. But, like, as soon as you're the showrunner, it's different. You say no. You shut doors. You fight for things. You pick your battles. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot about that just from watching John. learned a ton about that from Greg. Most of the time, you don't even know he's saying no to you. He's so good at it. Um, but, um, you know, for for me, the writer's room, that's a hill that I, you know, there's several things about it that's a hill I want to die on. Um, I, you know, keeping enough writers that during production, when something, you know, when we lose a location, when somebody gets COVID, when we have to make like a really dramatic change 10 hours before we shoot, we need enough writers that someone is going to be on set that we can all hop on a Zoom and do like a last second rewrite that somebody's kind of dealing with how that's moving downstream. Like one person is just not capable of doing all of those things. So, um, you know, it behooves me to fight for those because I would die. I would just die. I would just drop from um, uh, trying to clone myself in real time if I didn't have, you know, at least two or three people at all times, basically minding different aspects of production as we're going. And actually, Billy, if I could just um, piggyback off what Sarah said, because the health of the showrunner, which truthfully should be all of our top <laughs> priorities is to like stay alive for our families and everything. What's being asked of us as, you know, there's this push for the showrunner to to do more, the, like the room to write the scripts and then, or even just come up with the stories and then they're gone and then everything falls on the showrunner is legitimately impossible. And, you know, I, I was, I was watching as, you know, for a couple years there, it just felt like showrunners were dropping like flies to the point where it was actually really concerning to my husband. He's just like, 
okay, you're in the same age category. This person is having a stroke. This person had a heart attack. This person didn't wake up. The stress of the job is absolutely insane. And then as you start to remove resources from what is already insane, the hell, it's just not human. Like when Sarah said she would die, like that's a real thing. That's not an exaggeration. You, Courtney and I have had the same emergency surgery. Like we get so caught up in, we have to do what's right for the show. We have to, and part of the reason why we're successful showrunners is because we care. We love the show. Like there are children, we care about our crews. We care about our staff. This is our work family. And so of course we want to put 150% into it, but we're also human. And eventually your body is like, you know what? If you're not going to rest, I'm going to rest you. And so that's the thing that also worries me about the direction that everything seems to be moving in is I'm like, who's looking out for the health of the showrunner? Because it is it is not, and and for a lot of us, because of how passionate we are about what we do, we kind of do need someone else to step in and be like, no, no, no. I can't tell you how often Greg will send me a text and he'd be like, but your health, like, are you resting? Are you sleeping? Like, you need to, and, you know, same thing with Courtney. She'll text me or pull me aside at a party and be like, no, really, are you sleeping? How are you doing? What can we do to help? And we've all got this support system because we know we need those checks and balances. But as they continue to remove resources and they're like, oh, but as the showrunner, you're there. You can be on set. You can edit. You can do post. You can do the final sound mix. You can do all those things. We're only human. Um, and that's a really, really legitimate concern of mine of what it does to the stress level, to the blood pressure, to all the things of these showrunners that are being asked increasingly to do more and more with less and less. I was just going to say the only just a last little thing about that is that because shows are more remote and they're in a different time zone, then your workday becomes so long. So when I was working uh, on Power or Ghost Book 2, like as the, the showrunner of record, 4 a.m., 7 a.m. crew call is 4 a.m. here. I'm trying to be here and be a mom, right? So then I'm trying to be a mom, trying to be in eight places at once. But if someone is having let's say an issue in the makeup and hair situation at 5 a.m. and they're calling me, that's when it's starting. It's not stopping. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, once you start the, the train, it keeps moving every day. And if you don't have a writer on set in New York, then there's nobody to take that, field that, handle that. I don't get that phone call if that person is there because someone else is doing it. And if they've come up in my writer's rooms, they already know my answer. They already know Courtney's going to say no to that or Courtney's going to say yes to that or Courtney's going to say, here's how it benefits you to do what's already on the script because we gave you the script two weeks ago and we had a table read and you know that this is going to happen because it was in your character document that you got at the beginning of the season. This is not a surprise. Please go lay down on the floor and get shot because that's what we already talked about. So, um, I say all that to say that everything and Ketchy said four times, five times, seven times, every time, everything that Sarah is saying, everything that Greg is saying, a hundred times. But this health issue with the showrunner, I think, is something that's not being discussed. It's not really coming up in all of these conversations. And the reason it is important is because if they're not willing to pay for us to educate the next generation, there will be no one there to pick up the reins when we drop. So if I'm gone tomorrow, if NK is gone tomorrow, if Sarah's gone tomorrow, if God forbid Greg is gone tomorrow, who's driving? And then that actually does become a problem for the studio. And now it's too late. So I just need to say that, get off my soapbox, but it's super important. It's not a soapbox and it's an important thing to say. So I, I want to pick up 
so much of what you've said has been interesting, all of you. I want to pick up on something that Sarah said um, about learning how to say no. Um, okay, so Greg, uh, a strike is the ultimate expression of that idea. Yeah. Um, a strike is when you say no. Um, tell me what are the issues in this work stoppage um, that are so significant for you that you at you know the peak of this remarkable career are willing to put your pencils down and say no? What, what tipped it for you? I think it is an existential. I, I don't think that anyone, I would say on both sides of the issue, I think people know deep down, uh, are very aware that this is a, a huge turning point for this business and that we had a great period of disruption and and now everyone is is looking for, you know, on the business side is looking for efficiencies, as they'll call them. And ways to uh, make up for the additional costs still for COVID, which I'd love to talk about because I think that that actually played a role in hyper accelerating a lot of this stuff. And uh, you know, and and I, for me, it's it's how do we build a model that is sustainable for the future and more fair for everybody? It used to be everyone just had a couple of horror stories, you know, and now everybody's mostly got horror stories. We write these stories about making a better world. You know, we want to leave a better Hollywood for the next generation. That's as important as in getting to enjoy the one we were gifted. Again, I'm just on this podcast in the last couple of weeks, you've given numbers. I mean, I, someone stated them, I think it was 50% of people in the Writers Guild are working at Guild. I, you know the numbers better than I. 50% of Guild members in television right. are working at right. scale. So that that is unhealthy. <laughs> and that is not a healthy business model. And so, you know, it's for me of all the issues, the one I feel like I know the best. And when you first asked about us appearing here, is is the vitality and the importance of writers' rooms. You know, when I when I got into Hollywood, it, there were there were screenwriters and 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 people, Hollywood producers. I watched Hollywood producers' roles get diminished, independent producers. I watched the role of screenwriters get diminished. And then with the advent of all these changes that have happened in in TV and things adhering more to a streaming model. You know, and them pushing uh, writers to 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 work more singularly and less in a group. I mean, what we had working together in a writers' room was we had each other. We had the strength of numbers. Uh, we 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 had the capacity to to create uh, this medium a lot faster than you'd hear about development hell for a feature script. And now you hear about development hell for for now it's a two two and a half years runway to get a new show on the air in in most of the streamers. That's the issue of all the issues. That's the one um, that is the most personal to me and the one I feel like I just anecdotally and personally have the most investment in and knowledge about. And, and I've seen it get diminished and I've seen it get eradicated. And all these pathways that I could have taken over the last 20 years to try and get where I am have just slowly been eradicated and dissolved. And until those, those, those exist again and we all do what we can to, to make them exist again, it's, it's the business won't be the best it can be. And, and people in the rest of America or the world will get less good stories, but also all of us will just have a Hollywood that just, you know, is, is, is one that's less exciting and, and empowering to be a part of. I just want to pop on that for just a, like a quick second, because I think that what we're really talking about is a lack of respect for the integrity of writing as not only a career, but as 
as like a, something that matters. Greg Berlanti, I quote him all the time, said to me when I was a kid in this business, if it's wrong in the room, it'll be wrong on the page. If it's wrong on the page, it'll be wrong on the stage. If it's wrong on the stage, it'll be wrong in the edit bay. And by then you have to fix it when you could have fixed it back in the room. But that's because it is a living, breathing thing. And so the, the, the thing about finish all the episodes or break some story with a couple people and then come up with the scripts by yourself, it's an assault on what writing for television actually is. It is long form storytelling that should not take place with you by yourself with a laptop. Now, there are some people who do it that way and God bless them. Just not how I was raised, right? They speak a different language. They do something else. But what I was raised was the best version that the collective is more powerful than the individual. And Ketchy's saying, I provide a North Star, but y'all, if there's another way to get there, I'm on board. Best pitch in the room wins. That's something I learned from Greg. Not my pitch, best pitch. Again, I know I'm just a Greg fan. But when Greg wrote Why We Write, all those years ago during that strike, part of why we write is who we are. You know, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite signs is chat GPT didn't go to fat camp. Like I think <laughs> we, have, we have all these problems and all this trauma that we're trying to share with everyone for whatever reason we were called, we're the bards. You know what I mean? We don't have a choice and it's worth something to people. So anyway, I just say that to say that that's really important um, to respect that writing is not something that can just be done in a vacuum. People started to look at, uh, I think streaming sometimes looks at seasons as a collection of episodes, this many episodes, but it's not, it's a story. A season is a story, it's a tale well told. And so the tale cannot be told in these bits and pieces. It's told by a group as a collective and it lives and it breathes as you're putting it together. I agree with you. So. Let me ask you a question and then I'll let you guys go. Every time I bring up the subject of mini rooms or guaranteed number of writers in rooms, what comes back is Mike White and Taylor Sheridan. Um, I have my standard answer to that, which has to do with uh, our, our guild collectively and what is best for 99% of us. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about um, what do you think is fair for showrunners who literally don't want help. Um, if you are Mike White and, and you can dream up White Lotus one, two, or three um, by yourself and you don't want other writers around, what's fair? I'm going to start. And I don't think Mike would mind me telling, maybe he would. I don't think he'd mind me telling, but you know, I was in a writer's room with Mike White. That was the first writer's room I was in on Dawson's Creek. And so it's so fascinating to me that when everybody uses Mike as an example, I think he would point to a lot of other experiences he had actually in writer's rooms before he was at the moment in his life and his career where he could write and run White Lotus solo. You know, I mean, he taught me, he was one of those people that taught me a lot in the brief time we wrote an episode together. Uh, he taught me a bunch. I, I, I was always, when I was there on Saturdays, he was there. You know, I walked in on him writing something one time and, and, he was really emotional about it and he laughed and like we like he sat in my writer's room and, and taught me how to break a story on a board. You know, I mean, so so I actually had a writer's room experience with Mike. Uh, it wasn't the one that he's having the writer's experience he's having now. But when he went from there to Freaks and Geeks, he asked me to come 
speak at an event with him and he was a writer there. So, I mean, he had a, 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 someone should talk to him, but I think he would probably say, I had a lot of amazing experiences in, in writer's rooms. Um, I saw some of the friendships and the relationships he had there that I think taught him to continue to trust his own voice that is so genius and specific and unique and, and how to, how to use that voice to know what he was capable of or not capable of, or know when to push back or not push back so that he could ultimately arrive at writing something as brilliant as white Lotus in this system that we're all in. Again, my personal belief and, and um, you know, I know Mike a little bit, have never asked him. Um, I can't believe that uh, bouncing ideas off of other writers would be a bad thing in any circumstance. And I also can't believe that um, Mike would want to be used as a, uh, by the studios as a reason not to give the other 99% of us in the guild what seems so clearly fair. Um, but again, that's a question for Mike to answer. But here's the question that I do have for you. One of the things that the guild is really good at is granting waivers. So if there was a rule that said that a studio was required to put X number of writers in a writer's room and that there was some guaranteed floor there, and if we had a system in which the 1% of writers who didn't want that, Mike White, uh, went to the Guild and said, can I please have a waiver? Um, Would you be okay with the Writers Guild granting that waiver if on the other 99% of the shows there was some minimum number of writers uh, guaranteed in a room. Would that waiver bother you? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to answer it by first stating the obvious, which is, is I can't believe we have to actually, we're in a moment where we have to legislate to protect writer's rooms, which are, I think the most creative, most valuable. uh, And and I've, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of other things in this business. There's nothing harder than running a TV show, directing a movie, you know, writing a film, whatever, all the creative things I've been a part of running a television show is I think physically, emotionally, whatever the, the, the most challenging thing to do. And, and, and for generations has been, you know, hit TV shows have been, uh, you know, just economically, just like uh, one of the greatest engines of the business. And they've been run by groups of writers, you know, like they've been, it, they've been, the, the engine has been groups of writers. So we're at this point because of all this disruption that we have to actually, and everyone's going to, you know, and these systems are pushing against this or that, that they're saying, well, how valuable is this thing? And so obviously this, this writers, you know, the, the strike is, is, is everybody standing up and saying, well, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty valuable. And we all believe that it's valuable. And those of us who have, who have, existed in it and succeeded because of it and thrived because of it. We know it's valuable. And so we're going to show you how, how, how valuable it is. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I'm glad we have the negotiating committee. We have figuring out the, the, what that model will look like going forward. But, but I, I mean, you're just, you're not going to find out somebody who's more a proponent of the value and the importance of them. And if we're in a moment in Hollywood history where we have to legislate that in some way, I'm all for that. And if that means that part of that is a waiver and that one person can do bop, 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 or part of it is, but if we were all sitting here as directors, uh, you know, and, and having to suddenly legislate the importance of ADs, you know, like you better believe the directors would have struck and said, you know, like, I'm sorry, like, you know, we, we need assistant directors, like we need those, but those things are concretized. And we writers to run shows 
on the most part, especially if you want us doing multiple shows for you, making a lot of money for your institution, we need other writers to help us do it and, and to do it well and to do it at a level that we're proud of and that is sustainable. And so if we have to legislate that now at this point, and that has to be, you know, uh, um, again, concretized in some way, so be it. And if part of that is some valve for individuals that think they can sort of do it all on their own and uh, at whatever particular moment in their life that, you know, they want to do that, um, you know, I mean, uh, then, then again, we have the negotiating committee, I trust will figure that part out and they'll figure out what the, you know, uh, empirically just like sort of the, how to codify that. Thank you, Greg. We're going to leave it there. Listening to all of you today, the word that keeps popping into my head is caretaker. You are caretakers to your writers, to your crew, and to your shows. Maybe the ultimate expression of that is when Nkechi and Courtney talk about the possibility of suffering a heart attack or a stroke from overwork, and their first thought is, and who would step in to run the show? They nurture. That's what Alvin did for me. That's what this guild does for us all. It's what these four showrunners do for their loyal audiences. And it's what the companies that we are striking against will never do for anyone. Not for us, not for their employees, not for their public and critically, not for the business itself, even though that business has been so good to all of us. We are the ones who take care of the baby, their baby. That's what mentors have always done. Our reward for that shouldn't be a heart attack. I'd like to thank my four wonderful guests. I want to thank my brilliant producers, Ben Bloom and Hannah Baker. Please join us next week when our guests will be Mae West and Lon Chaney Jr. This is Strike Talk. I can never